In the past 10 years, I've come to really appreciate the concept of a personal board, a group of trusted friends who can tell it to me like it really is. Steve Scalia, president of Tanner Pharma, is in that circle. He was my ride or die during my college years and is one of the first I call when I'm considering career-related situations. Everybody's a customer. Not just your customers, but think of your boss as a customer. You've got to deliver for your boss. You've got to sell your boss. You've got to your, have your boss be buying from you. What, what, how does your boss make decisions that are going to impact what you're doing? So, and think of all your team members that way too. Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce, and I welcome you to drop in as I talk to my C-suite friends about what makes them tick lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories we share through the decades spent growing up in our careers. Mentor DNA is your backstage pass to learning from these inspirational leaders. Thanks for tuning in. It's funny, I was thinking about my original job, like when people say, what was your first job? And uh, I, don't, I remember the first thing I did for money and it was collecting aluminum cans in Southern California. I had learned from my grandfather who, he worked a couple jobs, one of which was as a landscaper, but his third was probably always collecting aluminum cans. This is before they even had deposits. It was just, you got the weight for it. So he taught me how to hunt it out and look for these things. I was pulling stuff out of trash cans. And uh, so I was probably four or five. I remember my mom letting me go through the neighborhood to try to find aluminum cans because I wanted whatever it ended up being, 85 cents at the end of the day. Um, you know, but the, the first things I re really remember doing in an organized fashion was um, car washes. Um, I was pretty decent when our Little League baseball team had to sell uh, Northwestern fresh salmon in order to raise funds for all of our gear. But uh, yeah, I was pretty good at the door. I was pretty good with school raffles. But really, it was it was car washing where I realized, like, the more the hustle, the, the, the more money you could get. Another great story, I think, too, is when uh, when I was probably 13 or 14, my best friend at the time, who is still my best friend, and he's my boss now, Banks Bourne, he and I were going to a, a local professional golf tournament. His mom had a few extra tickets, and we figured out, hey, let's just get, you know, 10 bucks a piece for these things. And as we were trying to sell them, we had a bunch of people saying, hey, I got extra tickets. I don't need any. So we started you know, buying them for 10 and selling them for 15 until we figured out we could buy them for five and sell them for 20. I remember coming out of that deal thinking, man, I have a hundred dollars. We didn't see much golf that day, but I was like, I got a hundred bucks. And all I've wanted was, you know, a new skateboard. So I went out, bought a, bought a used skateboard for 40 bucks, bought a new boogie board for 35 and I saved the other 15. So I remember thinking, man, I, you know, this is what, it, this is what life's all about. You're you make arbitraging big time. I mean, I've been on mute because I've been howling in the background laughing so hard because I could just imagine like the toe head Steve Scalia, you know, going around and hustling people. It was fun. Those were, those were fun times. And, you know, it's kind of interesting too, how much that hundred dollars that, you know, the impact, you know, it was kind of an early indication for me of kind of the variable value of money and the variable value of time, right? If you, huh. you need to get a, you know, a diet Coke and you don't have 50 cents, you know, 50 cents is pretty valuable, but um, same thing with time. So, uh, but that's the other area where I kind of look back and say the path I took was kind of maybe a little bit longer and arduous than the, than the normal path. But, you know, after that, it, it was really about focusing on academics. And I, I look back to this day and I don't regret 
the academic side of things, but I kind of looked at the system I was in and, or, or maybe what I would say, you know, and, and given my age, kind of what the system was like back when I was coming through about read, memorize, practice, regurgitate. There wasn't as much collaboration maybe as I see my son going through right now. So I became a pretty quiet, focused, studious type person. And it was really probably the most impactful job for me that really changed the course of my career. I went to college. I was sure from the age of 12 that I was going to be a dentist when I grew up. I was signed up for a science major and all this stuff, but I went home after my freshman year of college and I sold vacuum cleaners door to door. And I was horrendous at the beginning. Like I couldn't get out of my own way. You know, all the stuff you would expect from vacuum salesmen, I had sales managers training me to say all these things I wasn't comfortable saying. But by the end of the summer, I actually got pretty good and I knew what my niche was and I knew what I could say. And I realized that part of what attracted me to dentistry wasn't as much, you know, having my hands in people's mouths all day, but it was really about owning my own business and leading a team. So I, I stuck with the major, but I knew I wasn't going to be a dentist after that summer. Well, and if I may, after your freshman year at college, you still looked about 12. So I can imagine, you know, you going door to door selling vacuums. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but you had a successful summer. If I recall, you were pretty successful at the end of that summer selling vacuums. Yeah. Selling vacuums and, um, they weren't inexpensive vacuums. No, no, you, you remember, that's right. It was the rainbow. It's to this day, it's the best vacuum of all time. So uh, <laughs> I could, I could, I could go on for days, but uh, there's no doubt it was, it was an interesting, interesting summer. It was really tough in the beginning. It's always, it was weird to come home, live in my parents' house after being away for a year. Um, so I was out of the house as much as I could. I was either selling vacuums or I was at the gym trying to turn my uh, 12-year-old physique into at least a 13-year-old to go back to sophomore year in college. So. <laughs> That's awesome. And then so after, after college, what did you do? Yeah, so it made sense for me to stick with science. I had some good experience working in um, research labs at the UPenn Medical School. And um, so I ended up getting into a sales position with a pharmaceutical company called Upjohn Pharmaceuticals. And that was a great position for me, a lot of formal training. They were big at the time. They were subsequently bought by Pharmacia and they eventually became part of what is now Pfizer. And I just got this really high level professional training for a couple months. And then they handed me, you know, company car keys and said, you've got a two state territory. And I'm like 22 years old thinking this is the coolest thing of all time. Like I'm rolling around, you know, I'm staying in hotels, but I learned a lot of lessons there too about opportunity that sometimes, you know, there were times doctors had special requests and it might be outside of my normal routine. They would need special information. They need a study about the drug I was uh, promoting or something. And I'm thinking, oh man, now I got to find a way to put this in the mail and, and kind of go out of my way, out of my routine. And, uh, but those were the opportunities I had to kind of differentiate. So I kind of learned a lot in that job about how to apply training, how to be persistent, how the messaging through marketing needs to really be repeated over and over again in order for it to have an impact. That was a, that was a really formative time, I think, for all of us, right? We were just out of college yep. and you going, you probably taking your vacuum cleaning experience and your golf ticket sales experience and so you're calling on doctors, you're selling, yep. you're selling meds. Yeah. And it's, okay. uh, it's a different kind of sale. You know, you don't, 
it's an indirect sale, they call it. You don't walk out with an invoice and this kind of rush of adrenaline, like you just nailed it. You've got to influence over time. It's also, you've got to be respectful and follow some rules and ultimately the doctors make the decision. So you have to be careful. Um, I got in before a time when it became, you know, more about a glorified catering position where you've got to bring lunch to every office. So, uh, but again, great experience, great formal training, but it also, that's the last time I ever worked for a big company. It's probably, it's the first and last time. And there was nothing against that company, but getting back to, you know, that summer uh, after freshman year and realizing that it wasn't about having my hands in people's mouth. I was really focused on being a business owner and I didn't know exactly what that meant. I had a, another good friend of mine from high school that had the same sort of entrepreneurial spirit. His name's Ryan. We came together, we complimented each other really well. And that's when the entrepreneurial side of things started. Right. And so I remember you calling me one day and saying, I am going to open a Honda Suzuki dealership. And I thought, what? Like, here's a guy who's just been in, in medical, you know, pharmaceutical sales. So tell us about that transition. Yeah, we thought it would be too hard um, growing up. Um, anything motorized was was outside of my parents' uh, risk tolerance, so I wasn't ever running running around growing up on motorcycles. But again, a great friend of mine, Ryan Kelly, um, he did. He had convinced his family, um, and his dad's a doctor, that it was going to be safe and fine, and everything was going to be okay. So he grew up in that world, and um, yeah, we just we thought that motorcycles might be too tough. We looked at a bicycle shop, but it was really just anything. What can we start? This was just you know, advanced car detailing business just with, you know, franchises and real facilities and employees and all those things. And I, I like to say that we were naive enough to think we could do it and not afraid of hard work or, and, and probably thought it was going to be easier than it actually was. And then we look back at this on things and we talk about how, if you had to choose between by being naive and experienced, you'd rather be experienced. But if you don't have either. I mean, yeah, naive, naivete is probably better because then you can at least jump into something thinking that you can, you know, make your way through it, which is what we did, you know, and, and historically just made every mistake in the book. We've literally documented it. We went to training courses after we made every mistake in bo the book and they're like, you know, you want to be careful about this. And we're like, yeah, you know, we, we did that. So everything you can think of from cash management to, um, you know, sort of poor financial controls, not starting with enough cash, a few things we did right, though, um, Ryan always kept us really focused on customer service. And I think I did a pretty good job of keeping us focused on our team, making sure our team was as healthy as we could be. But again, we complimented each other and I learned a lot um, from him during that period. And then the big opportunity came along. Well, yeah, so we were in the motorcycle business. We were, you know, just struggling um, to, to kind of keep things going. We always had growth, but we it, we didn't manage it very well. And there was an opportunity to, to apply for a new Harley location. And uh, again, I said, listen, we're too buried in this Honda Suzuki deal to try to do that. But my uh, business partner, Ryan, was always sort of aggressive enough and ambitious enough to say, listen, we gotta, we gotta try to do this, we'll figure it out. So I'm grateful and thankful that we did. We ended up having to sell the Honda Suzuki dealership, sold it to a good friend, and then had that allowed us to transition into the Harley Harley deal. Um, that required moving back to the Mid-Atlantic area, it was right outside of DC. My business partner decided he'd rather stay in Charlotte and kind of support the dealership for a little bit and eventually be bought out. I was determined to prove that um, 
that all the mistakes from the first dealership wouldn't go to waste and that that we could do this, that I could do this. And, um, and so went up there, learned a lot from um, uh, our landlord and investor, a guy named Rick Hendrick, who's been extremely successful in dealerships. Um, and he was gracious enough to kind of teach us everything he knew and to point out, you know, help us learn from the mistakes that we had before to go into it the right way. And then uh, had a lot of success once we were able to uh, open the doors up there. Yeah, but you ran into some hurdles when you were trying to set up the dealership up there because it was, what was the timing there? It was, well, yeah, there was a, there was, it's just a lot more bureaucratic up there. And even though we found a, a piece of property that would allow us to develop a dealership there, uh, we, we were allowed to be there by right, according to the zoning, we still had to get special permission from the politicians. It's a little bit, I don't know, um, bureaucratic system, I will say. So we had to jump through a lot of hoops. We had to make a lot of promises and make some concessions to the neighborhood. Um, so that delayed us about a year and a half in the opening of the dealership. But again, it's one of those things looking back where uh, you end up learning so many lessons about how things go and it kind of put us into the right position with the community to get things going. There was never any animosity because we had to work through you know, a coexistence uh, from the very beginning. So it got us off on the right foot and um, and then just, you know, had a great experience, definitely applied all the lessons learned from the first dealership and, and even kind of took some of the some of the teamwork and cultural aspects that, that have really become, a um, I don't know, a cornerstone of what of the way I like to do things, at least to the next level, um, had a great, amazing team up there, established great relationships with the riding community. And uh, overall, you know, things were looking pretty good. So uh, was feeling good. And, and it, we started right during the 08 um, recession. We were still able to grow every year and bring it to profitability. I think all things considered pretty quickly. And then, yeah, I ran into some personal issues that uh, required me to make another transition, which at that point I was looking back thinking, you know, well, I say now looking back, I had to start over from scratch for the fourth time in my life. So it was really difficult. Um, I, you know, I look back on that period again, and it's taken me a long time to process it, but I think, you know, and your radar should be up, but you know, when something isn't right. And, you know, I allowed myself to get involved in something I shouldn't have been involved in. And it was a personal thing. It was outside of the dealership. Uh, but it ended up being a, a personal legal matter that sort of blew up to a point where I couldn't avoid selling my dealership and moving on and starting all over again. So you want to talk about lessons learned. I mean, I, you know, like I said, it's taken me a long time to process that, but, you know, I'm completely responsible for putting myself and my family in the situation. And, and there was definitely, I look back and um, there's a lot worse things that can happen. You know, I, been completely blessed with the family that I have, the opportunities that I've had. And, and, and I've been really hard on myself for having to kind of start over and leave the way that I did. But what's interesting is I decided at that time, you know, it could either be the beginning of a, of a long downward slide, or it could be the beginning of something, you know, new and really good. And I, I had a couple of close friends who told me, listen, you know, can't explain sometimes why things happen, but you know, keep your head down, have some faith, and there, there's a plan for you. So I always just sort of said, all right, I got to do everything I can do. And so I just dedicated myself to staying focused, not getting run down, tired, or losing sight of what 
was important or the right way to do things. And, you know, it's paid off more than I can say, just from the standpoint of the relationships that I have, you know, the, the family situation, it gave us an opportunity to move back to Charlotte, we're closer to my in-laws, which has been great for my son. So again, I look back and I'm happy to say that it's been a net positive, but it's still, uh, it's, it's been tough for me to process that. Yeah, I remember those times. And um, I just always knew that you were you would be fine, because you are such a smart and, you know, resilient person. And you're really, really good with people. And what my husband says, Graham, who you know, you know, he always says, if you've been successful once, the second time back is is a lot faster. And you don't make as many mistakes the second time around and third time around and fourth time around. So I always found it really interesting when you got into the Harley dealership because it was so incongruent with who you were, you know, like having to go out on rides. I was just envisioning, you know, like the person I knew from college, then going out and really ingratiating yourself with these Harley riders who are all about the brand and so loyal. And they probably looked at you at first and thought, who is this person? But you made friends within that community and it was critically important for you to do so. And so I'll bet that community had your back, even when you were going through those personal times Um, and you have really good friends and you have really good people who are loyal to you and who stood by your side. And if I'm not mistaken, your best friend from childhood then also is now the person with whom you're working at Tanner Pharmaceuticals, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, He, uh, he started a couple, a few companies back in 2002 and, um, you know, one is a uh, healthcare focused merchant bank. So he's doing traditional investment banking, financial services on the one side. And then on the other side of the house, they're doing direct investment uh, uh, like a private equity firm specifically focused in pharmaceuticals and um, consumer products and pharma services. But the other companies he started are pharma services companies that help pharmaceutical companies reach international markets. And we provide services outside of the core business models or core markets for pharmaceutical companies. So yeah, the theme for me, I mean, and it goes back even to, I remember having a conversation with one of our friends in college, a guy named Sean Bozinski, who was asking, you know, what do you think you're going to do when you grow up? Right. And I I remember saying, I'm not exactly sure, um, but I know it's going to have something to do with helping people. It's going to, you know, and, so I've always taken whatever business I was in and you kind of mentioned, you know, Harley, it just, you know, you have the image of Harley riders maybe as stereotypical, you know, wearing leather and loud bikes and, and these kinds of things. But for me, it was a, it was another opportunity to serve a community of people that found their relaxation, their freedom and the, you know, the open wind of the road and all that kind of stuff. So they're just really great people around that, that, came out in that community. And now that I'm in this pharma services business, um, and we'll, we'll get to the people that I have the pleasure of working with, but the patients that are impacted, we talk all the time about the families of the patients who are impacted, the physicians and the pharmacists that don't have access to medicine if it wasn't for Tanner Pharma Group. So we're really proud of the impact we're having. And for me, that's really what it comes down to. I've There's gotta be some meaning behind you know, what I'm doing. And um, I can drive a lot of that meaning from the the teams that I work with to deliver whatever we're doing. Um, But it also helps that the work we're doing at the end is also impactful. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you get to work with a close friend. I mean, that's an interesting dynamic, right? Working with close friends, 
can have their pros and cons. You guys have seen, well, you've been working with close friends, uh, you know, with Ryan and then now with Banks, I mean, for a long time and you seem to make it work, but I think it's because you really, you are a compassionate, you're a really loyal, compassionate friend. And so I don't think you would ever, ever jeopardize your personal relationships for business. Um, that I know to be true. I'm curious, is there something that you feel you have to do every single day? Otherwise you feel like you're not getting off on the right start. Well, no, I have a, I have a morning routine. Um, and it helps because, uh, for a lifetime of never having, having had a cup of coffee, I was introduced to English breakfast tea from, uh, uh, my colleagues in the UK. And so now where I used to not have a, a routine necessarily in the morning, and I used to joke about people stumbling into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee. Now I'm the guy stumbling into the kitchen in the dark, but it's to make a cup of English breakfast tea. So, uh, so that's, that's part of what I do. But um, the other, the biggest thing that I do is I'm usually just checking through, you know, my list of things that I need to do. And it doesn't always happen first thing. Um, The one thing that kind of gets going for me is since we have um, operations in the UK and Switzerland, I'm trying to check in the morning to see what has come through in the last in the five hours maybe before I got up and just see if there's anything that kind of needs to move forward. And then I can kind of take a step back before my calls or meetings might start in a little bit. And, um, you know, I wrote it down. One of my resolutions this year was to, you know, do more meditation thinking. I've read how, how it helps a lot of people. It's harder for me to do. Like once I get going, it seems like I'm going, going, but, um, you know, other than that, it's just periodically trying to, I'm, I'm alternating reading pleasure type books and then also just you know business or things that could help move you know move things forward from like a business type standpoint so yeah that's that's probably it trying to get a little bit of a read in um, and then through COVID obviously uh, the routine situation has just been enhanced um, to the nth degree everything being at home and not having many options to to do things that would break from the routine so the one I probably value the most is just regular dog walks with my wife. I mean, in the first month of being in lockdown, if we walk the dogs every single night at 6 p.m., you know, every night, and and those 30 dog walks were, were probably 10 times the amount of times we had gone out for a walk just in the previous year. So getting those kind of routines, this is what I'm mentioning too, about our, our back to work plan at our company will never be five days a week in the office again, just because there's too many benefits of uh, the work-life balance of being able to at least do one day from home. That's awesome. And are you finding that the team is still, I mean, I presume you're super busy. I know I caught up with you about a month and a half ago. You are probably very busy distributing COVID tests and, you know, around the world, masks, you know, all the stuff that it is required for COVID related matters, you guys are distributing around the world. So that's got to be super busy. And how, how has the dynamic of the team not all being together been? Yeah. Well, we talk about this a ton um, uh, within our entire company and especially within our senior management team, but 
We did a lot to build our culture, uh, at least since I've been there. I've been there now for 10 years. It'll be 10, 10 years this September. We've continued to do a lot. There's there's some really great people um, that were there when I started, and we've really focused on hiring people that would be a cultural fit. That's our number one priority when we're hiring somebody over talent or experience is cultural fit. And if people can get on the same page, which we've done a good job of doing pre-COVID, it really, it was like we had this equity that was built up that that helped us uh, make it through being separated from each other. The other thing I got to give credit to the technology. I mean, we were on some of the clunkier video uh, conference platforms prior to COVID. We quickly pivoted to, um, to the one we're on now. And it seems like they've all come a really long way in allowing for there to be, you know, video conferencing that really you kind of feel like you're right there anyway. So what we did is we leveraged the equity we built while we were together to help us when we were away. But but the amazing impact of what happened from a cultural standpoint when we were away is that we were able to bring down some of the barriers that used to exist between our different office locations and kind of institute some of the cultural aspects that were important to us on a global scale. So it kind of leveled the playing field in a lot of ways. So we look at that as a positive. Going into COVID, I think like every company, we were in you know stabilized mode make sure we got both feet on the ground, take those first two months when we thought it might only be, you know, 15 days to lower the curve or, or whatever the original, we didn't know how long it was going to be, but it was just, let's see, let's make sure we're okay. We had to do some contingency planning in case we needed to scale back, which is, isn't easy, but it's easier to do it while things are okay. We figured out a couple months in what you mentioned, you know, our business, especially two of our commercial divisions that essentially help to balance supply and demand on a global scale. Um, we're pro sort of product agnostic, right? If somebody needs a product downstream that they can't get locally, they, they can call us, or maybe we have access to products that are needed in other places and we can distribute them. So those businesses really exploded um, as you, know, you might expect maybe during a pandemic. And we were still cautious about supply chains, and what other impact there might be um, if, if manufacturing shifted to certain drugs and away from others. So after a couple months, we figured out you were going to be okay. Our model does work. Our people are doing great. Our platform, our backbone works. And we really didn't have much of a hiccup. Then we were able to say, all right, what what can we bring that might help from a, a pandemic preparedness or um, recovery standpoint? And we realized what we're good at is distributing pharmaceuticals through international distribution channels and, and, and correcting that balance. Well, we decided to apply that to PPE, medical equipment and diagnostics. And um, it, it took us a while to learn that market, especially in a pandemic environment. And what we realized we were better off on bigger opportunities um, towards bigger customers like governments than we were trying to fulfill smaller orders for, for these types of things. And uh, that's what led to um, some really big opportunities with uh, a couple of our team members who worked as contractors for the UK government for a period of time at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, they rolled back into our company, but, but recognized some demand that was taking place for the um, rapid tests, especially with the UK government strategy to test, 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 and make sure everybody, you know, that they're isolating the folks um, who test positive. So we had a really big opportunity and that continues to this day. We're, we're an integral part of the UK government's uh, response and specifically with their uh, procurement of rapid tests. 
Interesting. And so you haven't found, so you mentioned you're going, you're probably not going back to five days a week. You're going to three. So you are finding that it is working and it's the team camaraderie is still fine. Uh, what yeah. are, what is it that you guys are doing? You spend a lot of time building that culture, but what are you doing to continue to do that? And how are you onboarding new employees to making, to make sure that they are feeling part of that and learning that culture? Yeah. So we, it's interesting. I think, you know, we, we built the foundation pre COVID. We really worked hard. We've got um, some great people in our company that helped us focus on trying to deliver the same experience best we could through a virtual environment. So one of the examples that we're proud of, I remember, you know, when I, got there, there were only three full-time employees. It was easy to celebrate everybody's birthday with a surprise cake and lunch brought in and the whole, you know, we got to about 20 employees and somebody said, hey, maybe we should just have one celebration every month. And and we just decided quickly, no, that's not gonna be our company. Let's, let's accept the challenge of replicating, making people, making sure they feel special on their birthday, no matter how big we get. Well, at that point we were at 20 and we didn't, we didn't know how big we could get. It's becoming more of a challenge now. It's funny, there's some ideas on the books, but even during the pandemic, we switched to a virtual surprise party and we invite somebody to a meeting that says something like, you know, figure out the supply chain pathway. And then they show up and there's, you know, 70, 80 people there saying surprise and playing little virtual games. So I bring that up just as an example where we worked really hard to try to replicate the best aspects of our culture and, and, and treating people in a special way uh, while, it, while we were apart. Now that we come back together, we're going to sort of, we're going to try to thread the needle between taking the best of, of the pre-COVID world, building a culture face-to-face while we're together, and still um, holding on to the best of whatever was working from home, work-life balance, integration with your family, a little bit of flexibility. And so, you know, there's a risk that, that both of them could be not as good as they were before, but we're going to try to get the best of both worlds. And our, our team, you know, we saw it in the numbers, the, the time that our folks picked up by not having to commute, not having to, you know, uh, and I'm glad we're not on video, but my hair jokes would, uh, would be hilarious at this point, but not having to do their hair and get all dressed up and do all these things. They weren't just splitting that time with us. They were logging on earlier and they were staying on later. So we've had a really big push recently. We're glad we're getting back together face to face because it's been really kind of cathartic in some ways just to see everybody again. But we're really focused on the well-being of our team. And uh, we, we were able to make as our global priority number one this year, reinvesting in our people making sure that not just lip service saying people are number one. So we've got a series of large initiatives that are going to be giving back to our team members. We've got some smaller initiatives that are easier to kind of put in place, stroke of the pen, that's really giving back. And we've done a lot of things to try to try to help uh, recognize that uh, this has been harder than, than it feels for most people maybe. And to, be, to acknowledge some of those difficulties and to try to accept additional time or, you know, just some gifts or some opportunities from the company to try to make sure you've got the right balance in your life. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And how big are you guys now? Well, um, it de- depends exactly how you look at it. From the, from the measure of the uh, team members, we, you know, we're up to about 85, I'd say, globally. Our 
CAGR, if you don't include our um, the opportunities we've had with the UK government, has been about 35% a year over the last 10 years. And I think that's one of the things, even outside of the, uh, the, the large um, transactions we've done with the UK government, you know, I think I'm most proud of our team for the fact that we've built something that is stable, sustainable, and we keep, we continue to put large growth on top of large growth. So, you know, the bigger you get, that percentage number becomes harder to obtain. Um, you know, that first year, I think we grew 80%. Second year I was there, we grew 120. When the numbers were what they were, that's not as hard. But but growing, you know, um, 28% like we did last year, just there's a lot that goes into that. Everything yeah. has to fire on all cylinders. It's a combination, usually mostly organic growth and sometimes us taking new opportunities. Um, and that none of that includes, you know, what we've done at the sovereign level with the UK government. It's great. It's been fun. And, and with a great part about it, too, is there's been some global trends that have come our way. The willingness of pharmaceutical companies to outsource niche services, specific services. When I started with Upjohn, uh, we proudly in-housed everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything, call center, you know, distribution, probably had our own trucks that set up John on them. And then you fast forward um, to now and it's, you know, they're willing to pay a slight premium to outsource because they know, A, it's going to be a specialist and B, we, can, we probably can deliver in the long run for, for less money. Right. So um, they're, they're just like the rise of contract research organizations, contract manufacturing organizations, our uh, international distribution services have kind of, we, we've had some good wind in our sale and um, it's, it's allowed us to be aggressive and it's, it's worked out. Well, I'm not surprised. You and your team seem to be really, really well put together. There's actually, I wanted to share, there's a really cool tool that I just heard about. It's, a, it's called Anthem.life, yep. A-N-T-H-Y-M. And I think you're going to particularly appreciate this, but it's awesome for team building. What it does is, I don't know if you've ever been like in a Bible study, but in a Bible study in the very beginning, typically when you're forming the group, everyone comes together with their life story. And, you know, there's always like, you know, this is where I sort of like what you've just done, but it actually yep. goes pretty deep into, you know, the, a lot of times it's very vulnerable. And what Anthem does is it's a platform and it's using music as a way to really connect teams so you put together your, you know, your personal story and you're like, this is the song that represents me in college. This is the song that represents me. And, you know, at this stage yeah. of life. And so people like I was looking at the this one guy's yesterday and I was like, oh, my gosh, I know so much more about that person just from the five songs that he had. Like he wow. had Metallica, he had um, Widespread Panic. And I was like, oh, yeah, hey, I know, you know. <laughs> And so it's an interesting tool. And I think they're going to be adding more. And I thought, man, I could use this for every board that I'm on, every, you know, the school team, like everything, every organization that I'm a part of, I think would be really insightful. It would, add, like a personal, it would add a personal level to LinkedIn that just LinkedIn doesn't have. Yeah, great call. Hey, so what would you say was my song in college? <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I, mean, I got one for you. Oh, yeah. What's that? Groove is in the heart. <laughs> From the basement at Sigma Chi. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Admittedly, I actually have that song on a Spotify playlist. I figured. All right. And I listened, it, I listened to it the other day and immediately takes me back to Mean Gene. Yep. Timeless. 
Oh well, my gosh. Um, all right, let's keep going here. What's the boldest thing you've ever said to a boss or a colleague? Ooh, well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm more diplomatic, I would say, but I'm also, my communication style has, has sort of been off the charts for being direct. So I've, I've never, I don't really mince words, but I am cautious, especially around business partners and, and my boss, you know, so I can't think of maybe the boldest thing I've ever said, but, you know, one thing I acknowledge and I talk to our senior management team all the time that it takes friction to make fire. So we're not afraid to have disagreements, to work things out, you know, to, to have some issues. We try to go out of those meetings as a united front and say, hey, even if it wasn't my thought, my idea, or the one I was pushing for, I'm going to support what the group decided. Uh, it was a little bit different when, when Ryan and I were business partners in the dealerships. We were partners, so it was a little bit more even, and we were also complementing each other, but in very different ways. So we saw things in different ways. What's, we joke to this day about how um, he kind of like a marriage to some degree, you know, we were together working on something bigger than just us. The dealership was almost like our kid, right? And he learned a lot of things he says for me and sort of became a little bit more, I don't know, focused, cerebral, routine oriented. I always admired just how great he was with people. He recognized that people were at the center of everything, even if it looked like words on paper or numbers, there's some impact we can have from people talking to people. So I really, I, I've done this pretty big transformation in the things I focus on and the things I wanted to be good at um, sort of through, through these business ventures. So, but there were times when it was a little rougher for he and I, because uh, we were young, there was a lot of pressure and we didn't pull, neither one of us sort of pulled any punches when it came to saying something bold kind of to somebody who was there with you. I was able to witness how a lot of Mr. Hendricks lieutenants really worked for, for him and with him and, and sort of deferred to him. And I also uh, learned the value of um, sort of loyal, hardworking lieutenants when I was at the Harley dealership and I was the general manager doing it on my own. So now in my relationship with banks, I mean, the boldest thing I will say to banks is I don't agree and I'll tell him why. And, and he's such a great guy where the you know, best idea wins. But he also knows how to push me a little further out on the limb that if I kind of what he says, pound the table for something, it better work out. It's a good, it's a good balance. And there's still, it provides a lot of good motivation. Ooh, I'll bet there's something juicy in there. You're just holding back, but I'm not going to push you any further. <laughs> <laughs> What's the biggest leadership miss you see regularly? You deal with a lot of different organizations around the world. You've been in a variety of industries. Is yeah. there a common thread? Yeah, I know. I know what our common thread was in a big way. I think it's probably common across. I may, maybe I'd say there's two things, and and the easy answer I'd say is communication. Enough communication. We learned the hard. We were we were trying to grow so fast here. Go back, you know, between ten and five years ago. We, were, we would just sort of launch some initiative in the company and there wouldn't be a lot of communication about what was coming, why we were doing it. It would just sort of happen. And then we'd spend some couple months scrambling around sort of not necessarily the decision-making process, but at least there's awareness leading up to the point. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. And we're committed to explaining it and training everybody before we flip the switch. 
it's literally one of the biggest, it's one of the biggest misses we had before. And it's one of the biggest benefits we have now. We had to invest in, in a team of people that help us with quote unquote project management. We had so many projects that were happening without that team being able to sort of and they work extremely fast, but in order for us to slow down and hit every step of the process, and now we can actually do more by doing things, following all the proper steps with, with front-loaded communication, we can actually do more because we're not cleaning up the messes um, that we created by jumping out too quickly. The other one I, I would say I think is, is a leadership miss that I see a lot is just trust in your team and uh, I think there's there's maybe too often that people are either focused on their own career, and I guess maybe that depends on the type of work environment they're in, um, or whatever they're responsible for, or for putting quote unquote points on the board, as opposed to understanding the human factor of all the people that are supporting you within the company or even outside of the company, but especially within the company. So. I read a, one of the books they gave us at Upjohn was called, um, I think it was the customer driven company, something like that. Um, but it basically said, everybody's a customer, not just your customers, but think of your boss as a customer. You've got to deliver for your boss. You've got to sell your boss. You got your, have your boss be buying from you. What, what, how does your boss make decisions that are going to impact what you're doing? So, and think of all your team members that way too. Anyway, I think that's another aspect is not enough input and maybe respect for, you know, the, the team around you that's going to help you get there. Yeah, I think your, your first example is one that I see a lot too. And I think it's such an important one, selling the why. I think the team really needs to understand the why. They need to see the big picture. Then they can buy in or, or choose not to. And maybe they decide to leave because they don't like whatever that direction is. But selling the why, whether you're within an organization trying to sell a product or a service or even fundraising, you know, for the school, we do a lot of fundraising, selling the why, why is it that you want to get involved with this, you know, and, and be rowing in the same direction? I love that. Yeah. To, to me, it kind of, it fits a big, a bigger life lesson that's taken me this, this many 48 years to learn. But, you know, I recognize, I think that the people that I see who are happiest one of the things they have in common is they have a purpose, whatever that purpose is, you know, for some people it's God, for some people it's to make money, for some people it's to, you know, to have an impact. And, and, and I think that's one thing that we've done pretty well is making sure everybody knows that the hard work is going towards, you know, a bigger impact. But I think especially the younger generations, and it's funny, I, you and I, having this conversation and, you know, it, it happened overnight. We were the young ones for a long time. Like, wow, look at what the young ones are doing. And all of a sudden, you know, I see we're hiring these people and they could get, keep getting younger and younger. And I realized like, I'm not in that group anymore. It's, it, it just happens overnight. So, but I, I think that the younger generation, they, they've, as opposed to the, you know, previous maybe anthem of, you know, keep your head down, nose to the grindstone, earn as much money as you can. And when you retire, then you give some back and do some charitable work. I think the younger generation is doing a great job of having purpose while they work. And mm -hmm. it's creating a lot of great impact beyond just, you know, making money um, or having whatever your definition of success is. I think the purpose is at the core. It, it, when people understand why, it, everything sort of starts to line up. You also get some forgiveness when you make mistakes. You know, yeah. nothing's ever perfect. You roll something out, it's clunky. You didn't think through it the right way, whatever the deal was. 
But um, yeah, I think you get a lot of patience when, when people trust that you're doing, trying to do things for the right reason. Yeah. Well, so along those lines, now that we're the old folks, what's the advice you'd have for your 30 year old self? Ooh, 30. Let's think of where I was then. Yeah, I think, well, you know, it, it would, it would definitely be just don't give up. And I think what it might be too is to work smarter, not just work harder. You know, I was convinced we had friends that went to med school, right? We had friends that went to New York City as financial analysts and, you know, they never saw the light of day. And I was convinced that I had to, you know, put in my time and, you know, work seven days a week, um, six days a week, um, pull all-nighters, do all these things because that's what everybody else was doing. I think there was, you know, and again, going back to, you know, we weren't experienced, but we were naive. I still think taking a step back taking stock in things, making sure the direction is right, you know, because what ended up happening was, you know, a couple things, you end up, you know, you burn yourself out and then you start looking for cheap shortcuts, at least in my case. Um, and I think just a steady, smart, you know, proper trajectory would probably end up paying off. Like, you know, I, I don't know, I, it's hard to look back and have many regrets because, you know, it, it, it gets me to where I am now. And uh, God, I love my wife and my son and our, our situation's great. And I love the company that I work for and, and the friends that I have and everything. So it's hard to look back and, and have regrets. But if I could give myself advice, it would probably be to, to more often take a step back and try to work smarter, more strategically, instead of just working harder. Really important to remember, I think, as you said, it's so easy to get wrapped up in what everyone else around you is doing yeah. and not really taking stock of what's important to you and where you are and, you know, working smarter. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. What's the one thing you look for in a job candidate? What do they have to have? And is well, there a common, is there a common thread you see with people within your organization who are high performers? Yeah, there is. And I, I, I may have mentioned this earlier too, but it's taken us a lot of work kind of looking at what are our rising stars, uh, what do they have in common? And, um, and then some of the folks that we've had, um, you know, trouble keeping the alignment right within our company. And one of the common threads is you know, sometimes we can point back and say, yeah, we knew that, that it, it didn't seem like a good fit. And in that case, we're talking about cultural fit. So we've institutionalized our motto, which is culture, cultural fit is first priority talent is second priority and experience is a distant third priority. There are some positions in our company that require specific experience. And so that's almost like the, the requisite to get into the game. But once, once we're there, it's all about cultural alignment and talent. And there's not, you know, um, you can probably vouch for this, that at business school, they don't teach the business model of, you know, international pharmaceutical services and, you know, sort of, specialized distribution and cold chain supply chains, whatever. So we have to train everybody on what we do anyway. So but we're, we're looking for the people that are going to get it. And I think it comes back to our previous conversation too. Someone's got to have a bigger picture on things. That cultural alignment is going to rely on them having or appreciating the purpose that we have as a company to improve lives through the distribution of medicine. They've got, that's got to resonate. And if mm -hmm. someone is just personally career oriented or money motivated, 
it might work for a little while, but it's not going to work long term. They're not going to get us. They're not going to understand why we do certain things. So I think that has really become strong for us. And it has allowed us, we, I think we've hired, you know, um, nine to 10 people during COVID. So these people started without an office environment to come into, but because we tried to stick with our plan, we hired some great people and they were able to transition under the sort of the strangest of terms. And, uh, and I think it's because of our focus on cultural fit. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I love that, that the culture thing is first. That is so, so important. What is something that you've learned from a mentor that's stuck with you? Uh, for a long time, I considered myself to be somebody who would try to learn lessons from other people or be observant. And I, I have been, I've tried to be a student of human nature. I've even mentioned maybe a few of these situations um, so far, just in our discussion. But if I look back I've, I've been influenced by a lot of people. I consider a lot of people to be a mentor. Um, we mentioned my first business partner, Ryan Kelly. We were very different from each other. We complemented each other really well. But again, his recognition that basically everything runs through people and uh, you've got to be you know, really good with people and you can, you can influence things. You can make things happen by getting people on board. And so I, I learned that from him. He was really good at that. Um, he was a, a great example from my current boss and best friend banks, this guy, he's a gamer. So from him, I learned how to be competitive and especially the closer an opportunity or something gets to the goal line, the more engaged he is, he really can rise to the occasion and, and punch it across the goal line. So, you know, you look back at his success and people would say, wow, that type of return um, on investment for the things that he's done, um, you know, did he get lucky? I've been able to see from a front row seat just how competitive he is and, and, and nothing goes smoothly. And when it doesn't, what do you do? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't crawl into a corner and, and, you know, saying, make an excuse, he finds a way to push it across. So that was a really big one from me. Um, I think uh, working with Mr. Hendrick too, I saw the efforts he made to line up or to kind of stack the deck in your favor to win. If there's everything you can do in preparation, go ahead and do it. If you can talk more, if you can do more research, if you can hire someone better and his, his acknowledgement that he's good at some things and he's not good at others. It kind of gives you this confidence to say, yeah, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not. Let's find some people who can compliment. So, you know, and I wouldn't want to um, discount what I learned from you going all the way back. I mean, I would call almost the, the purest of optimism I've ever seen. And I still, I, I think back even to when you were getting your MBA and you guys, you know, started snacky and, it basically took over your entire, you know, the Wharton school by storm, this brand that you, that you developed. And just, there's always been this positive, optimistic nature to everything you do. You just, you bring out the best in other people. And, you know, so that was something that I, I've always remembered. And I, you know, I, I can't forget my parents in, in different ways, but my mom, her favorite saying was, if, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. So I just saw her resilience. Um, she started her career late because she raised my brother and me until we were in our teens. And then she started her career and still ended up at the, at the highest levels of executive banking within uh, Bank of America Mortgage. Uh, great career. 
and uh, and then my dad too, who, and this kind of came up in college, but he's the one who taught me that some people make their dreams come true and you can do anything you want. And so it was ingrained in him and going back generations, just that family comes first. And so, you know, my, my dad basically taught me that it's okay to dream and to go for it, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. What a great family you have too. And uh, I just always have fun memories of, you know, you taking me in on, oh, I just broke up with my boyfriend. I'm so sad. And, you know, come on, hang out with us. And so good, good, really good memories. I mean, too many to really go through and probably most inappropriate. So we probably shouldn't go into any. (laughs) I know. I know. Hey, but you know, my, I I just remember how, how uh, easy it was for you to meet people. And, you know, you were friends with some of my friends even before I met you. But um, when I finally met um, the infamous Mish, who was just so cool and everybody, everybody knew me. She was, I was like, wow, all right, that's, that's, so that's Mish. Okay. <laughs> well, the optimism you referred to earlier is just naivete. I mean, still continues to this day, right? I know, I know. Oh, I can do anything. Yeah, it's great. What advice do you have someone get, looking to get into the C-suite or onto a board? Hmm. Well, my first thought is, you know, there's, there's little replacement for the experience. And I, and I, and what I've done recently too, is I finally have started to embrace the mistakes. We made a really big, big mistake in our company. Uh, We didn't have proper, this is going back probably three years now. We didn't have proper controls and um, we were really driven to try to hit some numbers. And we ended up sending a deposit to a supplier in um, Sweden and, they quickly let us know that A, they weren't going to be able to get the product and B, they had no intention of returning our money to us. So as a result of the big mistakes, we just came in and with a landslide of corporate governance, controls, risk register, mitigation strategies. We looked at insurance and we looked at our processes for transactions and, and the amount of time it took to clean up that mess was taxing. But what we were left with was this company that was much better than it was before. And we kept, we've continued to grow since then. So it's been a lesson to me, more of a sales guy who would have always looked at controls and, you know, governance as something that would slow down growth. Mm -hmm. We've continued to grow arguably faster because we're not putting out fires and cleaning up messes. So from getting back to your question, I would say to embrace the mistakes that have been made in the past that you've been witness to, um, and to, you know, just maybe put yourself out there and, and offer that experience to other people. And I, I still am in the, maybe in the, you know, mindset that I'm still young and, you know, that it would be too early for me to help in in that kind of a way. But I've really enjoyed when I've been able to help other friends of mine on the side who have businesses and they'll say things like, man, how did you, you know, I don't know, almost like there's wisdom there. And I don't believe it myself because I'm just, I'm just trying to solve a problem, which is kind of my wheelhouse. But I realize again, how much happier I am being experienced than just being naive trying yeah. to do all this stuff. So I'd say, you know, embrace the experience, especially the negatives, especially the lessons learned, because they're probably the best, um, exp- you know, the, the, the best thing you can bring to a board or to a C-suite. 
Yeah, those are really good lessons. In fact, on one of the boards I serve, we just spent literally the last 18 months reviewing all of our governance and we're, you know, we're sort of finalizing the edits. And mainly because of similar situation, we hit a road bump and we were realizing that our governance policies didn't cover some very important pieces of, you know, what we should have covered. And so we spent a lot of time seeking counsel and talking to advisors and talking to other people who serve on other boards and really understanding, you know, what are the policies that we want to have in place to make sure that this doesn't happen again, or if it does happen again, how we're going to get through it without as much trial and tribulation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing I think I try to remember too, is that everybody, everybody approaches these things from a different perspective. So if the common ground is uh, you know, better governance, better controls. My, our, our global controller would say, hey, if I'm not putting out your fires, I can do more to get you good financial information to manage the business. If my, if my attorney's saying, hey, if we're not embroiled in litigation trying to get our money back, I can do a lot more for you on documents to set things up the right way. And from my perspective, selling governance is easy. Hey, you know, I, I know as a new customer, you've got to fill out this, you know, onboarding form and apologize that it's three pages and we need this and this, but we've got a robust corporate governance uh, platform that's going to keep us all out of trouble and it's going to allow us to focus on customer service and delivering for you instead of having mistakes. So it's, it's cool that if, you know, my, you know, my perspective on it is, uh, it is a, a huge benefit. It also benefits the same people that uh, sometimes have to jump through some extra hoops. Yeah. So the nice distinct way to put that is plan the work and work the plan, right? So what Just I always say to the yep. kids, yeah, what I say to the kids, like, I don't know where your baseball cup is. If Where did you leave it last? You know, <laughs> my <laughs> son had his first <laughs> academic final on Friday Ooh. Yeah, as for algebra. And he was, he was nervous. You know, he had never gone through a final. He'd never had to study an entire, you know, year's worth of material before. And his teacher did a great job setting them up, but he kind of didn't know exactly how to get started. And I literally said to him, plan the work, work the plan. You would have been proud. See? Okay. All right. We're going to head into the virtual insanity rapid fire portion (laughs) of this episode. Favorite leadership or business book? It's probably good to great. Um, uh, that's been one of my favorite. I mean, just the level of meticulous research, right? So it's not just anecdotal. It's also very specific research. It also pointed out some things that are a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, how, you know, some of the best uh, leaders are very routine oriented. Um, mine's a little bit, I'm a little bit looser. I, I go back, you know, my my, my, my mentor might've been Harry Hyde from uh, Days of Thunder, loose is fast. So uh, sometimes I tell our folks, hey, we got to keep moving. But anyway, I, I definitely appreciate that book and we're, we're getting ready to implement um, Flywheel and try to basically um, institutionalize or consolidate the, the things we've learned, the processes that are in place for us now that are benefiting us so much so that we can, we can turn up the speed on the flywheel and have that be a driver uh, you know, uh, for us. Oh, that sounds great. Can't wait to hear how that goes for you guys. All um, right. Favorite pastime. Favorite pastime. Well, probably watching my son play sports. 
that's probably the best one. It, 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 unfortunately, it kept him in a soccer program he wasn't real happy with for an extra year because I told him, hey, the highlight of my week is coming out watching you play on Saturdays. And he was going three days a week against these kids that were passionate about it. He wasn't real big on yeah. soccer. but um, So now maybe it's shifted to having my son beat me in tennis because he's gotten so good. But anyway, he, oh, yeah, he picked up tennis. He loves it. It's, it's his thing, right? So uh, yeah, that's been the fun part. You guys playing any pickleball? Not yet. You gotta, you gotta show us how. I think he played at recess, um, and it was different than tennis. He thought he could topspin his way to some victories, and it wasn't quite the same. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, I'll school him first, and then I'll teach him the lesson. All right. There you go. <laughs> if you had an entire day with zero meetings, what would you do? I would probably take the day to try to, you know, get caught up on some reading. I don't think I, I'm not doing enough of that. Um, I'm a little bit more action oriented. And I think, as we mentioned in the beginning, you know, a little bit more downtime, slow time, time to think about things. That's probably what I'd do if I had an entire day, if it, if it had to be work-related, if, if it was an entire day without meetings and it wasn't work-related, I'd be doing something outside mountain bike or hiking okay. with the fam. Favorite vacation spot? Well, there's a place in North Carolina. It's a beach called Baldhead Island there's no cars allowed. You got to take a ferry over there. And the only, the only cars on the Island are golf carts. So it's just this really serene, peaceful place. It's great. If you, if you've got more than a long weekend, it's a great place to go because you can do the full relaxing mode and it's not, it's not that far from us. So that's been, uh, that's been great for us. One of my happy places though, is Steamboat Springs. Um, and I'm, I'm holding on to every year where my son is still willing to snowboard with me instead of snowboard past me or snowboard with his friends. So my memories of him learning to snowboard on the slopes there are just, you know, I'll never forget. Yeah. Well, we've had some good ski trip memories too. Some good memories as with both families together. I know. One, one time in Deer Valley when it was storming so hard and the snow was coming in sideways. We have good memories. Yeah. It's an amazing spot. Finally, favorite quote. Yeah, I think going back to the, my mom's favorite quote, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Um, now there's just a lot in that. Life's, life's tougher than you think it's going to be, you know, especially growing up like I did. Everything's, everything's great and wonderful and ideal. And you don't know what hard's going to be. And you're going to make mistakes. I, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I make mistakes and and nothing's perfect. And, and a lot of things don't go as planned, but if you, if you take the lesson out of it, you know, makes things easier going forward. And, and it maybe helps me at least live with, live with some of the disappointment if, uh, if it's not going to waste, you know? Right. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Yeah. Um, I feel like we could have spoken for another 13 days. So many, so many great insights from you and your career and what you've done with your teams, with close friends of yours. And I think that's really telling about you is that you've known Ryan and Banks since you were little. I mean, yeah. elementary school, maybe even preschool. Yeah. And to know that you have worked with these people and started businesses with them and continue your friendships. I think that says a lot about who you are as a person. And I know that to be true about how loyal you have been to me through all the years and all the crazy ups and downs that we've been through with our careers and our personal lives and raising kids and, you know, stubborn kids and, you know, yeah. where are my keys? <laughs> where am I? 
So I just appreciate you being on and supporting me through this. And I, I just really am so glad that you took time to talk to the audience about your experiences. Well, listen, congratulations on Mentor DNA. I mean, anything I could ever do to help, I honored. I wouldn't think that I'd have much to add considering your background, the people you know, and everything you've done. Uh, you know, and I, I look at it, I, I'm, it's interesting. I, I still, my Facebook profile still has the shadow silhouette. I never added a photo. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm a little old school when it comes to this stuff, but you mentioned the friends and for me, um, it's not about the number, it's about the quality and you're on that list. I just admire everything you, you've done. You just the things you touch and you inspire people, you know, to do better and to be successful and to be themselves. And that includes me. So thank you so much for, uh, for the friendship and everything we've done together. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you guys and your family this summer as we do our little drive through. This is the mentor DNA podcast, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit MentorDNA.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Talk to you soon. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amour Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep-sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmorBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent you.